from Genesis 24. We're going to, I will be reading verses 34 to 51. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible that's in front of you, you can find the passage on page 18. So if you could flip to Genesis 24. And would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis 24, starting in verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you have come to my clan. If they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way I go, that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking my heart, Behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. 
Heavenly Father, we recognize that your word is breathed out by you and that it's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete for every good work. We ask that your spirit would help us to find this to be true this morning as we hear your word preached. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Josephine and I uh, felt a prompting to serve on a short-term mission trip uh, before we graduated from seminary. It was a goal, it was a plan, and we thought that this short-term mission trip would then help us be able to discern if missions is something that we might want to do in the future. I mean, after all, we knew the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. But we didn't know if God wished for us to be goers or to be senders. And so we attended a gathering in my professor's house to hear about an opportunity to serve in Ethiopia in the summer of 2016. My professor led a team every summer to teach at a Bible college that he started in Addis, the capital of Ethiopia. And I would help him possibly teach two classes, one on the Pauline epistles and systematic theology, and then Josephine, my wife, would help with the VBS at the International Church. This trip seemed to be a very good fit for our giftings as well as our abilities. But we encountered two obstacles. First obstacle is that it's going to cost $4,000 for each person to participate. That means it would cost us a total of $8,000. And in my mind at that time, it was equivalent to one-year tuition at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we didn't have that kind of money laying around. We feared that if we went on this trip, would we be able to pay for school this upcoming year? And second obstacle was this. Both Josephine and I were working. I worked part-time as an engineer with Lockheed Martin. Josephine also worked as a lighting designer at a firm full-time in Dallas. And we didn't have enough vacation time to take two months off for a mission trip. We needed income from both jobs to pay for school, to live. And leaving the job seemed unwise. And at that time, we had no insurance that things would work out if we went to Ethiopia. We had no idea if this is something that would be smart to do. And you could say that we felt fear, anxiety, stress. But why do we feel fear? Why do we feel the unease, the anxiety? It's because we had no assurance of success. We didn't know if things would actually work out. I mean, would this trip financially ruin us and I'd actually have to end my seminary career? Would we go and have a miserable experience in Africa? What if it puts unforeseen stress on our marriage that we come back with more conflict? We oftentimes fear that doing God's work will not have success. And that's our fear, our anxiety, that if we serve God, we do not have the assurance that we will succeed. I mean, if as a college student, I decide to devote my summer to serve on a short-term mission trip, while everyone else is on an internship, will I have sufficient job experience to land a job after I graduate? What if God calls me to end an unhealthy dating relationship? But if I end it, will I ever find someone? 
Will there be another boyfriend, another girlfriend? What if someone asked me to lead small group? But it's a big commitment. How do I know that if I lead, I will not burn out? And how do I know if I step up to serve and to lead this small group, that people will still keep coming? I'm not like my small group leader. I'm not as charismatic, not as smart, not as theologically sound. And we feel fear. We feel anxiety. We feel stress when God calls us to do his work, to accomplish his purposes, to do his will, to obey him. And why? We lack the assurance of success. We do not have the confidence that things will work out. So what should we do? What gives us the assurance, the confidence, that when we experience the fear of doing God's work, it enables us to move forward? What gives us the confidence to do God's work despite the anxiety, the stress we feel? What inspires us to obey God when we see all these obstacles before us? Now let me share with you something that Hudson Taylor someone who is near and dear to us because we named our son after him, who was a missionary to the interior of China, he would often say, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And you've heard this quote before. You're like, it sounds very familiar. It's because if you attended a members meeting recently, Melvin shared this quote, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And when I read this morning's passage, this quote kept on resonating in my mind. I tried to figure out, how could I summarize this passage in another way? But I couldn't. So I'm going to show you instead that when a person does God's work, God's way, they will never lack God's supply in this text. How this text, the characters, the people in it, exemplify this particular principle. So if you haven't opened up your Bibles already, please turn to Genesis chapter 24. That's where we'll be spending our morning. Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. Now, this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. 67 verses. Now, I want to assure you, we're not going to cover every single verse because otherwise we don't have time for this service, okay? But I want to show you again how the characters in this text exemplify the idea that Hudson Taylor espoused. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. So to do this, we'll examine the different elements within this idea. We'll ask three questions. First, what is God's work? What is the work that God wants us to do? What is the task that God has entrusted to us? Second, what is God's way? What does it mean to do things God's way? What is his prescribed method for us to follow? How could we then answer, this is indeed the way, right? So, and third, what does God supply us with? What does he want us to do? What is what is that supply that he will give us to be able to accomplish his way? So we're going to talk about God's work, God's way, and God's supply. So let's look first at God's work. What is 
God's work. What does he want us to do? What task does he entrust us with? What is our assignment? And our assignment, our task, our work, ultimately is to bless the nations. That God desires for us to bring his blessing to all people. People in Houston, people in Texas, people to the ends of the earth. He wants us to reveal, to disclose, to share his favor to everyone. This is our task. This is our assignment, our duty. God's work is to bless the nations. Now, we're currently working through the book of Genesis, as you know, and we see God's plan unfold itself in the life of Abraham. We see how God intends to bless the nations through this man's family. That God's work is to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants. And we see this blessing repeatedly over and over and over again in the life of Abraham. He receives the blessing of this promise when God calls him to leave Haran. And God promises that Abraham will have many descendants, children, offspring. And that the nations will be blessed through Abraham's lineage. Now recall that the blessing also says that God will make Abraham into a great nation. Now, to be a nation, you need both land and people. And last week's sermon shows how Abraham secures a deposit of land to bury Sarah. This foreshadows his descendants obtaining the land. Now, this morning's text focuses on the seed, the children, the offspring. Now, at the end of his life, the end of Abraham's life, Abraham believes more strongly in the promises of God. And we see this in this first section from verse 1 through 9. And I'll point out some things from this particular section. First, we see that Abraham receives the son that God promised him. That God promised him a son through Sarah, and Isaac was born. And we see this in the repetition in these nine verses of two words. My son. Look at verse 3. It says, you will not take a wife for my son. Verse 4, it says, take a wife for my son Isaac. Verse 6, see to it that you do not take my son back there. <clears throat> and then verse 7, you will take a son, <clears throat> take a wife for my son from there. And then verse 8, you must not take my son back there. And this shows that God had fulfilled his promise to provide Abraham a son. And this causes Abraham to believe in the promise of God, that he has a faith now that he will do what God asks him to do. He believes. And we see this in a few ways in the text. First, Abraham refuses to find a wife for Isaac, among the Canaanites. Because if you remember earlier in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham that the people of Canaan are set apart for judgment. Now look at verse 3. This is where it's more explicit. It says, You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So that is the task, that Abraham will send his servant to go find Isaac a wife from his fatherland. 
And Abraham trusts that God will provide, that God will fulfill this promise to give Abraham descendants. Because in order for Abraham to have further descendants, Isaac needs to get married. But Abraham doesn't worry, doesn't fret, because he knows that God will supply the, son, the wife. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, it says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So it seems like Abraham has faith. He has trust in God. And this is quite a change from the Abraham earlier in Genesis, who would lie about his wife, Sarah, being his sister, who slept with his wife's servant, Hagar, to produce an heir. And now he trusts God to provide an appropriate wife for his son. Now, we learn in the Old Testament that God intends for Israel to be a nation sold out for God because this would then prompt nations, peoples, to come to Israel and to worship their God. <coughs> now, this would result, ultimately, in the blessing of nations. Now, you and I both know the story of Israel. How well do they do in their task? How well do they do in their mission? They don't do so well. In fact, one might say that they fail in that particular mission in the Old Testament. But God's work to bring blessing to the nations continues through us, through believers, through those whom God has saved through the work of Jesus Christ. That God's work is to bless the nations through believers. <coughs> and people will learn of God's plan to bring goodness, to bring wholeness to their lives through Jesus. So then the question is, what do we do to be a blessing? What do we do? Now, believers are a blessing when they live out the great commandments. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, it's oftentimes simple to say, but very difficult to do. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means nothing takes priority over God. No spouse, no girlfriend, no boyfriend, no parent, no employer, no friend, no community, that God takes first place in our thoughts, our affections, our loves, our behavior. And when we do this, we demonstrate a life that is under the submission of God, under his direction, under his authority. It sets us apart. And secondly, we love our neighbors as ourselves. That means we provide for the care, for the needs of the people around us. That when God highlights a need, we do our best to meet that need. When someone gives birth to a child, we send them a meal. When someone feels down or feels overwhelmed at work, we listen to them, share that burden. When someone experiences financial hardship, we might give so that they can get back on their feet. 
Now, it's not just about caring for people, doing good deeds, giving to those in financial need, lending a listening ear, providing a meal. It's actually more than that, because God also calls us to share the gospel with people, that believers bless the nations by sharing the gospel with them, that to be a blessing means that we share with unbelievers the news that they can experience a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And to believe in the gospel means that we have hope. That means whatever happens to you as a Christian, good or bad, it will turn out for your good. And that is a blessing. So what is God's work? Bless the nations. Love God. Love neighbor. Share the gospel. And everything that we do falls into those three categories. Now let's move on to the second question. What is God's way? What should we do to accomplish this task? How does God want us to carry out this assignment? What is the way? Now, God's way is to depend upon him for guidance. We need to rely on him, ask him for help, look to him for aid. We need to seek him out for what to do. We need his instructions. We need his help, his direction. That God's way is to depend upon him for guidance on what to do. And we see this played out in the life of Abraham's servant. Abraham entrusts the servant with this mission. Go find a wife from my fatherland for my son Isaac, so that the nations might be blessed. And Abraham's servant depends on God to guide him to Isaac's bride. So let's see what the servant does. So the servant goes to this well where the women of Nahor gather. He goes to this place because there is a high concentration of women there. Uh, look at verse 11. It says, And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Now the servant and company come to this well. All these women come out of the city to draw water. You have young, you have old, everyone with their jars. They descend on this well. Now he's sitting there looking at them. It's like, okay, how am I supposed to figure out of all these ladies, which one is it? To whom do I give the rose? And this prompts the servant to pray. The servant prays to God for guidance. Look at verse 12. We find his prayer there. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now let's look at three elements within this particular prayer. First, the servant addresses God as the master of Abraham. Uh, look at verse 12. It says, God of my master Abraham. And there's a lot in that phrase in terms of what that means. To whom is the servant praying to? He prays to the God who called Abraham out of the land of Haran to go into Canaan. He prays to the God who saved 
Abraham and Sarah from Pharaoh. He prays to the God who enabled Abraham to rescue Lot. He prays to the God who saves Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays to God who provides a sacrifice in lieu of Isaac. He prays to the God who creates the heavens and the earth, the God who knows all things, and the servant trusts that only he can guide him to Isaac's bride. Now, there's a second element to this prayer, that the servant bases his prayer on the steadfast love of God. If you look in this text, the word steadfast love shows up twice. It shows up in verse 12. Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And it shows up again in verse 14. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, the Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed. And it refers to a loyal love that's found within a covenant relationship. It's where an inferior asks a superior to show kindness. And the servant bases his prayer on this covenant relationship that exists between Abraham and God. Now, there's a third element to this prayer, that there is a specific request. And the specificity is spelled out in verse 14. It says, Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. That the servant plans to ask these women for a drink. And if this young woman offers not only him, but also his camels a drink, then the servant will know that this is the one. And the servant models doing things God's way. He didn't hand out a survey to each of the ladies, please fill this out and discern which might be the best. He didn't look at each of the ones and see, oh, which one has long hair or nice eyes? He prays and asks God for specific guidance to do his work. Now, when Joe and I were trying to discern whether or not we should go to Ethiopia, we prayed. We asked God to show us what we should do. Now, of course, anyone going on missions, short-term or otherwise, we wish for a burning bush experience. We just wish God would write in the heavens, you shall go. Now, we didn't have any type of experience like that, and we didn't hear his voice speaking to us, but we decided, okay, we feel like this is a good timing for us to go on this short-term mission trip. So, Lord, we are going to trust you. And we are going to pray and ask you for help to overcome these obstacles, the finances as well as our job situations. And some of you might be praying as well about how to do God's work, guidance on whether or not to serve at church, the worship team, the council, children's ministry, youth ministry, small group. Some of you may be asking for guidance in your relationships. How do I date in a way that pleases God? Should I continue this relationship? Guidance in your work. Should I continue to serve on this team? Should I stay? Should I go? Where could I possibly make the greatest impact for God's kingdom? Or maybe even guidance on how to steward your resources. Should I give to this organization? Should I support this missionary? How much should I give to the church? And we should pray. They we pray for God's guidance to do his work. And God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. So what does God supply us with? What do we receive from the Lord? What will he give us? 
Well, God supplies us with what we need. He doesn't give us what we want. Emphasis on want. There's a lot of things we want, but God doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what is needed. He gives us what is necessary to accomplish his work. He provides for us the resources to do his will. He furnishes us with what is essential to accomplish the task that has been given to us. That God supplies us with what we need. Now, what is the need in the text? The need is a wife for Isaac, and God provides the wife. God supplies Isaac with Rebekah so that they might inherit the promise of Abraham. But then the question is, why is Rebekah the ideal wife for Isaac? Why is she depicted as the best fit for him? It's because Rebekah resembles both Abraham and Sarah, and that makes her the perfect wife, the best fit for Isaac. That Rebecca resembles both Abraham and Sarah, making her the perfect wife. So let's look at how she resembles Abraham and Sarah. First reason, Rebecca's ancestry resembles Abraham's. That she comes from the line of Shem through Nahor, his brother. Look at verse 15. This is highlighted there. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So the lineage is similar. Now there is a second reason. Rebekah resembles Sarah's beauty. She is gorgeous in appearance. And she's also a virgin, meaning that if Isaac marries her, then all the children will be his offspring alone. There are no other kids. In fact, I remember a pastor once saying that she is a 3G woman, a gorgeous, godly gal. And you look at, you see it in verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar up and came up. And that first section highlights those attributes, that beauty. Now, there is a third reason that Rebecca is a perfect fit. That Rebecca resembles Abraham's generous hospitality. Look at verse 17. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said... I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now, why is hospitality important? Now, if you remember, Abraham earlier in Genesis exhibits generous hospitality when he entertains the three guests before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He provides for them bread, curds, milk, a calf, a very generous meal. And here, Rebecca exhibits a similar type of generosity, extravagant. She provides drink for the camels. Now, as an engineer, I had to think, okay, so how much water exactly is this? Okay, so there's 10 camels. Each camel, who, if they've gone on a long journey without water, they can drink up to 25 gallons of water. So if you sum it all up, that means she needs to provide 250 gallons of water. You're like, that's a lot of water. Yeah, it is a lot of water. Now, she has one jar. This jar holds only three gallons of water. 
That means she would need to make 84 round trips from the well to the trough to make sure that the camels have had enough to drink. I mean, I imagine this servant watching this woman working up a sweat. I mean, three gallons of water. I don't know if you know how much it weighs. It weighs 25 pounds. And you're like, how much is 25 pounds? If you hold my son later, you will know what 25 pounds feels like. Okay, he is 24-ish pounds, okay? So imagine, you have this 25-pound jar, this sand bell, carrying from the well to the trough back and forth, back and forth, lower the jar, pull it up, empty the jar, and she does it 84 times. And notice, she doesn't just walk. She's not leisurely. You know, I mean, look at verse 18. It says, she quickly let down her jar. Verse 20, she quickly emptied her jar, and she ran to the well. I mean, it's more intense than an Orange Theory workout. I mean, it's just exhausting even thinking about it, right? But Rebecca exhibits this wonderful hospitality that resembles Abraham. Now, look at the last reason. The last reason, this fourth reason, is that Rebecca resembles Abraham's faith. I mean, after the events at the well, the servant returns with Rebecca to her home. The servant recounts his prayer and God's response. He believes that Rebecca is the woman that he is looking for. And he asks, can he return to Abraham with Rebecca immediately? Now the family says, oh, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Well, let her stay 10 days. And the servant insists, no, she must come immediately. And the family says, okay, well, let's ask Rebecca. And what does Rebecca say? Let's look at the conversation in verse 56. It says in verse 56, But he said to them, Do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? That she's only met for a day. Think about that. She said, I will go. Now what does that sound like? It sounds like Abraham, right? It sounds like when the Lord asked Abraham to forsake his family, his home, his land, to go to a land that God would show him. And Rebecca does exactly the same thing. She forsakes her home, her family, and she goes to marry a man that she's never met before. This requires faith. It requires trust. And it resembles Abraham. So for these four reasons, ancestry, beauty, hospitality, faith, Rebecca is the ideal wife for Isaac, and God supplies Isaac with Rebecca. Now that Isaac has a wife, it makes him the heir, the recipient of God's promise to Abraham, that Isaac and Rebecca both inherit the promise of Abraham. Now, where do we see this in the text? We see this when the servant calls Isaac his master when he returns to the land. Look at verse 64. Verse 64, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. Now, why is that important? It's because in the entire text, who has the servant been identifying as his master? It's been Abraham. But now that title is transferred to Isaac. Now, let's look at the second idea. Rebecca inherits Sarah's tent. She occupies the tent that Sarah lived in. It is the matriarch's tent. 
And we all know what that means, what it symbolizes, that she is now the queen of this family. Look at verse 67. It says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So what does that mean for us? It means that God will supply us with what we need to do his work. He provides what is necessary to get the job done. He will furnish us us with the resources that are needed to accomplish the task. Now, I'll give you an example again from the mission trip. I remember when we were trying to raise support to go to Ethiopia, we had only raised about 50% of the required funding. And a person who we have never met before, who actually resides here in Houston, had a connection with my professor. And my professor asked him to provide support, and he provides such a substantial amount that it boosted our support by 10% overnight. And then a week before our trip, a week before, this is like six days before we're supposed to fly out to go to Ethiopia, we were still short about $1,000. And a brother after worship service comes up to us and asks us, how is support raising going? And we shared with him that we were still short by $1,000. And that evening, he gave us the rest that we needed to go. That God provided all the necessary funding for us to go on this short-term mission trip. Now, let's say you pray on where to serve. Maybe God will point out to you, give you your attention to an announcement to maybe serve in the children's ministry because you see a need there. Maybe you pray for wisdom on what to do in your relationship and you receive a text message from your friend and she shares with you a sermon about relationships that she found helpful. Maybe you pray for where to give and you discover a need at the church. And this prompts you to think about giving to meet that need. Now, I'm not God. I'm not a prophet. I'm not sure how God will answer your prayers. But what I do know is that God will supply you with what you need. Now you're asking, well, how can you be so sure? How can you be so confident that God will do that? We have this assurance because God gave us his son. We have the assurance that God will supply us what we need to do because he gave us Jesus Christ. Now let's think about this well scene for a little bit. Abraham's servant shows up at the well to find a wife for Isaac. And another well scene will occur in Genesis. Jacob shows up to a well to find a future wife. Moses will also arrive at a well to find a wife, Zipporah. Now does that mean God says to the pattern, if we want to find a wife, we should go find the local well? And that's where we should go hang out. No, that is not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is these scenes at the well point to another well scene. Because the next scene at a well from the Old Testament happens in the New Testament. And if you remember, someone shows up. A perfect servant, a perfect Israel, a perfect prophet. Jesus Christ shows up at this well, this well in Samaria, and a Samaritan woman shows up. And she's had five husbands. She's no Rebecca, she's no Rachel, she's no Zipporah. But Jesus invites the Samaritan woman, not into a marital relationship, he invites her into something even better. He invites her into a relationship with God. And she is not only invited, her alone, but we are as well. That he invites us all into a relationship with God to allow us to worship God in spirit and in truth because he is the Messiah. That he will give up his life to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be saved. And if God is willing to give his precious son 
to supply for us salvation, then will he not supply us what we need to do his work? He will. And let me give you a little caveat. The way that God provides for us to do his work, it's not going to always be what we expect. It's not always what we imagine. He may not supply you with what you need in terms of what you perceive, what is necessary to direct you on that path. But know this, that in the gospel, no matter what happens in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, God can use it to accomplish his work through you. So what is God's work? To bless the nations. What is God's way? God's way is to depend upon him for guidance. And what does God supply us with? He supplies us with what we need. Because God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. Now, I already shared with you how the Lord helped Joe and me overcome our financial obstacle to serve in Ethiopia. But some of you may be wondering, so what did you all do with work? Because you had to take two months off. Now, for myself, I shared with my boss that I planned on going on this short-term mission trip to Ethiopia for two months. And I would be willing to resign from my position, but also train up a replacement to take my place. And as the words came out of my mouth, my boss just did. And you're like, oh, that's not good. And then he asked, well, why don't you just take two months of leave of absence, unpaid leave of absence, and then return back to work? I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Sure, I could do that. Then the question is, well, what about Josephine's job? I mean, that was also a very difficult obstacle to overcome. But I remember that spring before the mission trip, Josephine came home a little down. And she shared that her company was not doing very well. In fact, she came home after they laid off two of her fellow coworkers. And she might be next. And so as we talked about it, we wonder, well, maybe God is telling us that Josephine should resign before the layoff, and we should go on this trip because the company's going to lay her off anyway. So she tenured her resignation. We went to Ethiopia, and when we returned, she connected with someone in the lighting industry, and this contact arranged for an interview with Joe's current company. This company provided a better salary, a better work-life balance, a better team, and God provided all that we needed to do his work. And I'm sure that God will do the same for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you call us to the work of blessing the nations. We thank you for how you make this need known to us. But we also thank you for how when we do your work, your way, you will give us what we need. And may we trust in that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.